Now, it's over four decades since Ireland first felt the devastating impact of AIDS and HIV. And my guest this morning has campaigned tirelessly for awareness, empathy, understanding and progress. And for many years, he's been swimming against the tide of stigma and ignorance. One of his aspirations was for Ireland to have a permanent monument to the lives lost and broken through the AIDS epidemic. The results of his campaigning will be unveiled on Sunday. The monument is called Embrace Loop and it will be installed in the Phoenix Park. Good morning, Tony Walsh. Hello, Brendan. Great to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, I know you years. You are a national treasure and the godfather of of Ireland's gay culture, queer culture, as we call it. Uh, First of all, how are you feeling about the monument? I'm really excited that it's happening. I'm really excited and quite moved that actually the Taoiseach and... Uh, his department made it happen so quickly. Yeah, uh, we've been, we've been. There'd been a lot of community engagement and consultation around it about five years ago, and I didn't think I thought it would actually just be a distraction during the COVID pandemic. But um, government just pushed ahead with it. So it, actually, there's very it's a cute Irishy story of how it came about. Right, you were doing your walk. <laughs> Is that, and, and, and Leo was you've on heard, the walk. That, yeah, but well, I did the walk. I did the first walk. Okay, remember? So, but it's actually it is. It's well. It also shows you the it shows you the nature of how casual politics and connections can be in Ireland. I was doing a culture night walking tour in twenty eighteen. That's right. Yeah, and I heard that the I was told that the Taoiseach and his partner were going to join us for the walk, and I thought, okay. Now I heard this early in the morning. I thought this is a perfect opportunity to go and print off a paper I'd given in Manu's College on World AIDS Day December prior. And it was basically, I'd given a short paper arguing for why we needed to have a memorial in Ireland and why the time was right to build a physical uh, monument. And so this is my golden opportunity. So um, I palmed off the... um, the proposal to uh, the Taoiseach during the walk and then his now, second... Don't gloss off that you actually gave it to him while he's I on the walk. I gave it to him. <laughs> I gave it to him on the walk and I said, listen, I'd love you to have a look at this. <laughs> Only you. And then he... Well, it was like, where else am I going to get an opportunity for this? I don't know him personally. Yeah. And, um, and then his, his secretary uh, wrote, wrote back to me and said, uh, the Taoiseach is really interested in this idea. We'd love to do something about it. And then that a sort of roller coaster of meetings in, um, in government buildings and uh, some communication. And from that, it opened out into more community engagement. Now, the Taoiseach's department were, were, were working in parallel with a group of community groups like HV Ireland and, and others we had meetings in Belfast, we had meetings in Galway, we had meetings in Cork and in Dublin, just trying to get a measure of what people wanted. And, you know, it's it's really important. We're going to look back on history that yeah. we have. We bring together the widest possible group of stakeholders who were affected by the pandemic in the first place. OK, let's go back then, right back to the start. So remind people of the reality of those days. Uh, sometimes it feels like people can just put the ribbon on. Mark the day and move on, right? But uh, World Aid Day is very important, isn't it? Because uh, go back, take me back to the to the when it first broke and what it was like in the country. Well, it's important that we remember those yeah. of us who lived through it, and then there's there's I suppose through the process of remembering, we can actually open up conversations with a, a later generation who just are completely ignorant of it. We can come back and talk about how there is an, still an enormous ignorance in, in in sort of public memory of what happened. I think actually. 
The recent pandemic, COVID, has helped shine a new light on the AIDS pandemic of 40 years ago. So I think we're beginning to engage in that process with a lot, lot more honesty and empathy as a society. But living through it, I'm 62 and living through it as a gay man, I mean, by the age of 35, I'd lost two f- lovers and half of my friends. Wow. By the age of 35. And there was, I simply did not have... The psycho-emotional language are the tools uh, available to me to make sense of that loss. It was just seemed like a never-ending, um, never-ending series of funerals, the hospital hospital visits and whatnot. Um, and, and the problem is that the the three major groups, who, demographics that were affected by by AIDS in the early days of the pandemic, were gay and bisexual men sex workers, IV drug users. IV drug users, people forget, actually. In some ways, they've been slightly written out of our, our memory of the pandemic. IV drug users were the, the lead demographic in this country um, of, 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 of HIV and AIDS infections for a long time. Um, but all of the early demographics, and then, of course, we had hemophilix who were infected by, who um, got AIDS as a result of infected blood products from abroad. But the early demographics were people who, um, whose infection was coloured by criminality and transgressiveness and othering, social othering. And that made it, at the time, it made it difficult to try and actually get a handle on our experience and even to as we progressed to a point later on where new therapies came on board like AZT in 19, although that was toxic in 1987 and then later antiretroviral therapies I've often thought as the years unfolded that we weren't allowed, those of us who lost fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters and grandchildren that we weren't allowed to grieve we weren't allowed to make sense of our loss. It was full of shame. Oh, it was full of shame. And there's people have carried anger with them. They've carried they've carried grief, and they've carried they've had this burden. And it's made worse by the fact that they look at society, mainstream society, and feel that we haven't been allowed to make sense of that loss, and our, our loss hasn't been valued. And I suppose. You know, we're at a distance now where we can actually build a physical monument and we can start the process of remembering and we can put a value on the suffering that people experience. I can, I can actually, and I, I do know you well over the years, I can hear how important this is to you personally, though, as well. Well, do you know what? I, I mean, I'm surrounded by a whole new generation of fabulous friends and everything, but I, I, I sometimes think, and it's difficult saying this, but sometimes I think I'll never get over, I'll never get over what happened. I, and I and for that reason, I often call it the war. I think I'll never get over it, and I don't want to. You know, I'm, it's it's difficult talking about this sometimes, Brendan, because I don't want to sort of end up pathologizing grief. It's not about medicalizing it. You know, if we just simply throw drugs at it, we're not going to sort it out. We need to talk about what happened. Yeah. We need to educate people about what happened. That's really important. I get the impression that big part of the scarring, the the, the mental the psychotic scarring uh, is because of the stigma, because you couldn't process, because it was put it away, you know, and which was very much of the atmosphere of the time. Do you think that played a large part in it? Because I'm yeah. looking here, the media had some of the headlines at the time, the misinformation around Oh, that. shocking. But you also have to remember too, we're talking about the arrival of AIDS at a time when we didn't even have sexual health clinics. Yeah. 
I mean, sexual health... Well, it was illegal to be gay. Yeah, it was illegal to be gay. Condoms were actually legally restricted as well up until 1995. People forget that as well. They weren't available to under-18s until after 1995. I've done a few of these talks and I'm sure you agree and you say, you know, I was 21 when homosexuality was legalised in 1993. I was an adult renting an apartment with Alan, my friend, and living away from my I was an adult I was adulted and it was then that I often hear an audible what from younger people they forget it's a, in, within our generation and you know I think it's really important that you actually mention the criminality because if your sex if your desire if the way you negotiate intimacy and the desire has been criminal then it's very difficult to, for example to put um, sexual health safer sex strategies in place to actually sort of open up a wider conversation about normalising affection normalising desire and also looking at how you we need to put in place, and people are attempting to do that, put in place really strong harm reduction strategies. We still haven't, we're still only tinkering with that, for example, when it comes to injecting drug users, and they still constitute a significant part of new HIV infections. We're still not really talking about women and trans women who've been uh, disproportionately affected. I mean, new infections of HIV are going up amongst women, and historically, women have been underrepresented in a lot of the public discourse. I mean, a lot of it has been sort of gay-centric. And in some ways, that's because, first of all, for all the reasons you just outlined, all the shame, cultural shame that attached to gay men being infected by um, um, uh, HIV. But also, we were the gay community was just better organised than a lot of other demographics back in the 80s. Yeah. Um, so I think, too, now, the whole process of remembering sort of begs the question, well, how do we deal with trauma? Yeah. And, you know, trauma rarely leaves physical trace. It's embedded in our psycho-emotional well-being and everything else. We have to, our, our psycho-emotional identity. It rarely leaves a physical trace. And then that really pushes us to ask the bigger question, well, then, what's, what, how, what does memorialising involve? Do we build a little physical monument in Phoenix Park where people can go and passively grieve? And that's really important, and I won't deny that to anyone, anyone else. But I would suggest that it has to be something bigger than that. We have to have conversations like you and I are having now. We have to sort of encourage um, a greater awareness in the school education system because it ain't there. You know, we have to encourage, fi- help finance and fund cultural expression. I mean, I'd love to think that next year the, the new monument will be a year old and somebody will have poetry readings or some cinematic event or some cultural event up there in Phoenix Park. You'll be, need, need to be well wrapped for it on World Day Day. But that we do that sort of stuff and, then we, and it allows people a sort of wider engagement and reflection on what's happened before. And also, too, I think this is really important. Building monuments is no use. When, if we look at the legacy, the legacy of the AIDS um, pandemic has to be about asking questions of where we are now. That's really fundamentally important as well. It's not just about looking back. It's you, about you looking forward. There, you touched on it there. Uh, just, you, all we have is the present. Where are we now? Yeah. Where are we now with yeah. this, with, 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 in terms of infections and the disease? Uh, we need greater, more urgent conversations and smarter interventions. You know, we need to, we don't have proper sexual health testing around the country. I mean, I'll give you an example. I was living in um, Clonmel, which is 19,000 people, up until 2019. And I was heading off for holidays to Amsterdam just before Christmas. And I decided I need to go and have an STI uh, checkup. And I phoned South Tip General Hospital and the nurse came online and she said, um, well, the earliest appointment I can give you is January. I said, 
Well, that's not going to be much use to me. <laughs> I need I mean, to actually laughing, have a checkup now. But it's not funny, right? And she said, well, we ended up having a mad conversation. She said, well, there's only two and a half nurses here and we work a Wednesday afternoon. I said, oh, my God, this is a sexual health clinic for all of South Tip. Yeah. It's and they work and one afternoon a week. Yeah. For a hinterlands of about 90,000 people. I said, this is just not right. No, no, no. The infrastructure, that sort of sexual health infrastructure needs to be, we need to take it seriously. And do you think this And testing kits, for example. Yes. Now, people are talking about testing kits, home testing kits for HIV and everything. You should be just available. PrEP should be available for, if you're a sex worker or whatever, or you feel you're engaging in risky activity, roll out the PrEP and make it free at point of use. All that sort of stuff is really important. Um... The misinformation at the time and the scaremongering was rife and it was led. I mean, look, it was a different time and no finger pointing at this stage. But there was I remember headlines that scared. I was like 14, 15 when it landed. You know, it terrified us. And in a way, my generation uh, were so terrified. You know, a condom was something we carried always from the age of 18. We just it, it was my mother would make sure don't go out there because the, the, the ads came and just in time for my generation. But prior to that, what kind of misinformation do you remember? Uh, apart from misinformation, I just remember very little, an absence of information more than misinformation. Yeah. Just it's, it, the information wasn't there. And I tried to sort of dial down. I mean, I think I was unusual in that I was, because I was politically active, I was getting, watching and reading what was happening from the States. So I think I was, I was part of a small group of people who were a little bit more privileged. We knew what was actually happening. We knew that Ireland was setting up for a calamity if we didn't actually get on board and make some changes. And you know what? Some positives. Like one of the things too that's lovely about, I think, about memorialising the period, certainly diving into the trauma, diving into the grief uh, that happened, um, that ge two generations experienced, but also looking at the positives. Because you know what too, like, I'm sure you appreciate this, the AIDS pandemic actually accelerated the need for recognition of uh, same-sex relationships. Of course, yeah, yeah. People forget that. Yeah. Because we had we had to deal with issues where um, um, partners were refused access to ho hospital visiting rights. They were kicked out of family of of their partners' homes when the when the when the parent the family of the deceased partner basically their wills weren't recognised, their rights weren't recognised as partners. Before we had relationship recognition. And, and the pandemic really drove marriage equality in quite an exceptional way. I think also because to of the injustice of losing oh your partner God. and then being evicted from your home. Yeah, and I, yeah we yeah. know. I know many of these stories where yeah. somebody lost their partner and then the family swooped in and took their home back yeah. because they had no rights. So that's very interesting. I never joined that. Dot. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can you can you can draw a line from to 2015 marriage equality in Ireland right back to the AIDS pandemic. I mean, people were talking about recognition of, of same sex relationships before the pandemic, but it really accelerated. And a lot of activism accelerated in Ireland, community activism, and I'm not just talking about the LGBT community, inner city drug using communities who were, dis as I said, were disproportionately affected. They were affected. really disproportionately affected, weren't uh, they? Yeah, and it really sort of opened up questions about, you know, urban planning, about advantage, social advantage, all that sort of stuff. I mean, mind you, we're still not there. Of course. There's still pockets, as we all know, just from 
recent events, there are still pockets of extraordinary social and economic deprivation in our all our urban centres and not just in Dublin that we need to actually tackle and we need to also tackle, tackle the fact that we've recently had an, an upsurge in, in heroin use. I mean, when I was reading that, I thought, what's going on? It's all we'd put that to bed. Yeah. Um, and I do think, too, some of the other positives that I, that I, I were shining a light on as we remember the pandemic and we actually memorialise uh, World AIDS Day is... Um, I think it 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 developed a much greater sense of empathy and compassion from different sectors in society. Okay. People stood up and said we need to do something. And people who stood up and, and they also challenged othering, you know. I mean, now you look back at some of the scary headlines and everything and you just really rank othering um uh, that and that people engaged in, in in the print and broadcast media and realised that just wouldn't fly today. It just simply wouldn't be tolerated. It's insightful, it's horrible, it's vicious, it's mean, it's bigoted. Um, so I think, like, yes, the pandemic, and we saw it during COVID as well, the pandemic actually encouraged a greater sense of compassion and empathy amongst many people. And you were saying you, you can connect maybe the, the recent pandemic, the global pandemic, COVID, you can, people can connect to... the they connected in some way, it re-highlighted the, the, what had gone before four decades ago. I mean, there were similar experiences and yet they weren't. Yes. I mean, we, had, we didn't have a lockdown during, during the AIDS pandemic. But in terms of crude mortality, um, COVID is nothing like what we experienced during um, um, the AIDS pandemic. I mean, as you said, 40 million deaths and 37 million people are living uh, with HIV today and will, are living normal, ordinary lives. Um, although people are still dying of AIDS, we don't talk about that. Right. And we don't talk about the reasons why still people are still die, dying about uh, dying from AIDS, even in Ireland. Why and, are they? Well, because the the paradoxically the advent of antiretroviral therapy that allows people to just take a pill and get on like me and take a pill and you get on with your life and I'd probably just die of box standard heart disease or something. That in many ways mortality, AIDS mortality, has just dropped off the page. You know, but we do need to, we just need to ask, well, why and why are people actually still getting AIDS? Even in, in, I mean, people are still, most people who die of AIDS are now in the global south. And there's a whole myriad of reasons why why that's happening. Access to expensive antiretroviral therapies are a faulty healthcare system or war, for example, HIV testing in Ukraine has collapsed as a result of the Russian invasion. And that has a knock-on effect even in countries like Ireland because then you've got somebody from Ukraine arriving on the doorstep of Ireland with a new HIV diagnosis or in some cases because it hasn't been diagnosed with an AIDS diagnosis which has all sorts of implications in terms of healthcare and financing and people's sort of well-being. Um, So actually that's fascinating as well. Is Is there lessons we can teach the world from our experience of oppression and shame and stigma. And now that we have a monument going the Phoenix Park on yes, Sunday. Yes, there definitely is. And also too, I think we have a responsibility to our diaspora because we also forget... This bit fascinates me. I know what you're going to say. ...forgotten about our, uh, how we remember the pandemic is the number of um, uh, 
many men, but some women too, but gay and bisexual men who left Ireland, not just because they needed to access better healthcare, because the healthcare facilities, the health the healthcare just simply wasn't available here to the standard that they needed, but they left, as you well know, because of the shame and stigma, the culture of shame and stigma, and the, the states of exclusion that, they, that exist in Ireland at the time. And they died, in some cases, they died really sad, lonely lives. Yeah. Painful lives somewhere else. Bill Hughes did that. And we, we have to own up to that story. We yeah. really do have to. We have to own up. We have a duty of care to tell that story. Yeah. And sure. access it in some way. The, the texts are flying in here. I'm a straight man, somewhat older than your guest, who lost several gay friends and Ivy user, using uh, my dear friends before 1990 in Dublin. I want to make the point that we will never know how many people died between 1977 and, say, 2000, because official figures are understated due to other attributed causes of death on death certs. Case, Not yeah. unlike what but happened with COVID, actually, comorbidity. So, like, it's impossible. There's a lot. Of, and I think the stigma and the stigma that we're talking about did actually impact. I mean, just think of a pop star like Liberace, actually, they tried to actually change his death cert. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow. This, I want to mention this as well, because we both know about this, just to say an Irish documentary about contemporary stories of people living with HIV today in Ireland is on Netflix from the 1st of December, World AIDS Day. It's called How to Tell a Secret, directed by IFTA award-winning Anna Rogers. I think you're in it, are you? And artist Sean Dunn. The film uses uh, genre-blurring storytelling techniques to expose the social stigma around what it's like to live with HIV today. Veda's in it. We've loads of friends. It's a great documentary yeah. and it should be seen by everyone on World AIDS Day. And it's on World AIDS Day, 1st of December. Um, so what does the monument look like? Let's get a little bit, let's get really gay on this. <laughs> <laughs> it's essentially, if you can imagine, an AIDS red ribbon. Oh, okay. But it's the ends of it are splayed out, and, it, and it sort of makes for seating, and it's going to be in the people. Oh, it makes pa- for seating. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Can, you can reflect. But I do think you know we're talking about the physical monument. I also think too it's incumbent to say that we the building a monument is only the beginning of the process. Okay. So where do you see it going? The monument, the physical monument, is the start of how we really memorialise the pandemic and not the end. And I think after that, we need to, well, it's how the, the value in peop- that people put on the monument will actually play out in ways that hopefully we don't even imagine and will entertain us and, and spark our curiosity. But I think we also need to... Um, we need to democratise access to AIDS archives, HIV and AIDS archives in country. For example, Dublin Diocesan, the Roman Catholic Church of extensive AIDS archives in, in Ireland. They need to be made publicly accessible. HIV Ireland's uh, archives need to be digitised. A lot of it is fragile. The um, archives of the Irish AIDS archives in the Irish Career Archive in the National Library of Ireland wow. aren't publicly accessible. They need to be digitised, catalogued and digitised, made accessible, not just to the general public, to broadcasters, to academics, to students. Uh, and other smaller little archives, the quilts, inner city drug using communities created quilt panels. Yes. They're extraordinary. They're, they're extraordinarily poignant uh, physical memories of the AIDS pandemic. And, you know, they require preservation. Yes. They should be digitised. Um, and I would actually suggest to anyone listening that I think the time's ripe now to to consider sort of cultural interventions. I know you're a big fan of Russell T. Davis' It's a Sin. Yeah. And, I mean, look 
look at the conversations as it's it created, sparked yeah. Yeah. Uh, as a result of this really, really uh, exciting uh, forehand or drama. And I think we need more of that sort of stuff. So it's World AIDS Day this Friday, the 1st of December. You have a few events going on this tonight. You have something happening. Is that correct? And people can watch it on GCN.ie. That's right. So tell me what you're doing tonight at Google. Um, it's called Monument to a Plague, Memorialising the AIDS Pandemic. And it's a col- collaboration between HIV Ireland, Asset, uh, World Day, um, the Irish Career Archive, uh, and Google. It's on in the Foundry and Google and GCN and Google will be live streaming it. So you can watch it live stream. GCN.ie and Google will be live streaming. Tony Welch, uh, always an inspiration. Pleasure, Brandon. Always a Thank pl- you. Absolute pleasure. Never sure. Have a great week in Ireland. <laughs> Thank and you. I'll see you very soon. Let's take a break. <laughs>